Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, this morning it's my privilege and pleasure, pleasure to introduce to you our guest preacher, Pastor Sunita Ponton. I got to hear Sunita preach at a recent gathering of Covenant Pastors at our fall retreat up at Pilgrim Pines, and I thought, man, we need to get her to Bethany. And then as Pastor Chris and I outlined uh, the weeks of this sermon series, the series that invites us to consider that a life of worship is a life of responding to God, we thought, wow, there's no better timing uh, than now to to hear from Sunita. Sunita is the Associate Pastor of Justice, Advocacy, and Compassion at Metro Community Church and Director of Metro Community Center, both in Englewood, New Jersey. Though she accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior as a young child, she received her call to ministry in law school and has been on a roller coaster ride with God in formal ministry ever since. At the same time, she continues to work in nonprofit administration and consulting. Her heart beats for all people to experience God's love and justice and to see the realization of the prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Sunita says she has the most fun when she's with good people, eating good food, and while traveling somewhere that preferably requires a passport. So Sunita, no passport needed to get from New Jersey here today, but we're so thrilled you're with us. Welcome. Good morning, Bethany family. I feel like we're family already. I have been warmly greeted by so many of you already, and I am excited to be with some friends here. Um, Ben and Chris, Diane, I just met Howard. Um, I am excited, and I'm sorry, your wife, whose name? Anne. No, it's okay. (laughs) But I see your face, and I love you dearly, and so I'm grateful to be with you. My pastor is Pastor Peter Ahn, and I'm always grateful that he gives me the opportunity to come and share with other congregations on a Sunday morning. Um, So if you would bow with me in prayer, the instruction that I was given was to come up and preach. (laughs) Let's pray. God, we are grateful that your story remains true, that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who loves, that you are a God who redeems, And you are God that calls us to respond to that love and that redemption in service to others, God, as a form of worship. God, I have prayed and prepared as best I know how. Um, But God, we pray that you would preach this word. Lord, I have studied your scriptures, but would you send your Holy Spirit to come and do what only you can do, O God? And God, I have written words on paper, but would you write them on our hearts that as we serve others, we might do so with hearts of worship. Now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, amen, amen, amen. amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. If I had to give this sermon a title, I would call it, um, The Church as Good Neighbor. 
1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Then the word of the Lord came to him, meaning Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he sent out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we might eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So as you know, I am from New Jersey, and I grew up in a very urban, suburban neighborhood city called Inglewood. And it was a good childhood in a pretty decent neighborhood. I knew all of my neighbors. The Fergusons, they lived across the street in this really nice house that had pillars, and I thought they were rich. The Carlwoods, they lived next door, and, and they were older than me. The children were older than me, and so the daughter babysat me, and later on, I babysat her children. On the other side of us were the Black family. It was, a, it was an interesting family. The mom had long hair like Diana Ross and was super skinny and, and short, and she wore black all the time. And one of her sons became like a godfather to me. Down the street were the Londons and the Taylors, who each had children my brother's age. And across the street, the other way, were the Holidays, who were the nicest people in the world up until her death at age 90. Mrs. Holiday would walk up and down the block, picking up trash and, and putting the garbage cans back against the sides of the, the homes. Mr. Holiday, now 100, still lives there. Yeah. And then there was Aunt Iris and Uncle Bill, and when I was growing up, it seemed like they were old all the time. They were just always old. But they became my surrogate grandparents. They took care of me and my brother, and I grew up playing with their foster children. We had block parties, and everyone knew one another. We belonged to each other. But I have to tell you, Inglewood wasn't all perfect. Our house was robbed by our next-door neighbor, who, no less, it turns out, was a part of this huge crime spree. Others on my block went to jail. Some struggled with addictions and had a hard time keeping jobs. Children died from cancer. People moved away, and then other people came who weren't really interested in being neighborly and getting to know one another. You know the type of people who like avoid you even though they're standing right in front of you. They try to act invisible so that you don't say anything to them. These places that God sits us they're so multifaceted. There's so many wonderful things about our neighborhoods, and yet so much more that needs the Lord's deliverance. Neighborhoods can be complicated and messy, and yet God calls us there. God calls us here to Berlin. 
Your sermon series theme is wonderful. I love it. Respond, living a life of worship. And this morning, I want us to imagine how caring for our community is an act of worship. To me, worship is defined as the appropriate human response to the magnificent glory of God. Hasn't God been magnificent in your life? And if so, it is out of the abundance of that magnificence, out of a heart filled with gratitude and love, because we know that we are deeply loved by our Savior, that we are able to love on others. We love on our communities. We love on God's people um, that he has surrounded us with. We care for others as a response to the care we have received from God. So how do we demonstrate the love of, of the community around us? How do we worship God through service to our local community? How do we become good neighbors? When we enter the text this morning, we realize that there is a drought in the land brought upon by the Lord. Ahab is the reigning king of Israel, and the Bible describes him as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord more than any other before him. Can you imagine and as a result of Ahab's Baal worship and, and building altars and Asherah pole, God sends Elijah to prophesy that there will be a drought. But while there's a drought in the land, God provides for Elijah. He tells him to go near a brook, and God instructs the ravens to bring him bread and meat each morning and e evening. And then the brook dries up. And God tells Elijah, go to Zarephath because there's a woman there. There's a widow there. And through her, I will provide for you. Elijah finds this woman and, and he asks her for water in a drought. And then he raises the stakes and he says, go make me a cake of bread with a little bit of oil and a little bit of meal that you have. And, and she says to him, look, I was just about to make a little bit for me and my son. And then we were going to die. But Elijah says, no, no, make one for me first, and then something for you and your son, telling her that as surely as the Lord lives, she will not run out of meal or oil until God sends the rain on the earth. And surprisingly, this woman listens to him, and not surprisingly, God fulfills his word. And as a result, the widow, the son, and Elijah, they eat for as long as the drought lasts. So who is this man, Elijah? He's a prophet. He's sent by the Lord to vigorously oppose Baal worship and those who participate in it. Since the days of Jeroboam, the northern kingdom had not had a priest who would lead people towards faithfulness in God. The kings had been equally unfaithful. And now there is King Ahab who wholeheartedly invites Baal worship. So God sends Elijah to be his representative to oppose idolatry and unfaithfulness. The prophet reminds us that as people of God, that we too have a prophetic voice to ask questions, why does this drought exist? So what does the prophet Elijah and this text teach us about how we, the church, can be a good neighbor? The first thing we learn about how we can be a good neighbor is that we're to live with our neighbors. We're to live with our neighbors. Looking at verses 7 and 8, it says that the word of the Lord came to him saying, go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. Now you might be saying, this seems so obvious, but think about it. You can live somewhere and actually not really live there. 
Your church can be located in a community and not be a part of the community. My community in Inglewood in many ways is, is a bedroom community. You might be familiar with, this, with this, uh, this, this connotation. It means that there are some people who live, work, and play in Inglewood, but most people in Inglewood work and play in New York City, and they live in Inglewood because it's just slightly cheaper than Manhattan. Slightly. They're not engaged in the community at all. They just lay their heads there at night, thus a bedroom community. And churches in many ways can be the same way. The church's physical address could be located somewhere, but maybe the members drive in and out, and, or maybe if they live locally, they only engage with a select group of people in the community. So you can live somewhere and still not live there. God calls Elijah, and he's calling us, to live where he has placed us. To be a good neighbor, you actually have to live with your neighbors. God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath and live there. And the word live is yeshev in Hebrew. It implies a longer period of time than just stopping by. It means to remain, to abide, to dwell in. My mother used to say, take off your coat, sit down, and stay a while. Elijah was not going to be allowed to escape the drought by moving away or moving on. If you're going to live somewhere, then you have to live there. You have to be a part of the community. Ask yourself, how present is Bethany in Berlin? Do you support small businesses? Are you involved in the local politics? Are you becoming a prophetic voice in this community? Because when you live in the community, the community is yours. You have to struggle if there's poor public transportation. You have to pay the high taxes like everyone else. Your kids are affected by the school system. You notice that there's a food desert. You notice that there's no urgent care or hospital nearby. You notice the yelling and the screaming coming from the wealthy neighbor's home. You notice the tear-stained face of the lonely stay-at-home mom in the park. You notice the kids sprawled out on the front yard after a pill party. You notice the man sleeping on the church steps. When you live in the neighborhood, you actually experience life among the neighbors. Elijah experienced the drought for himself. He was in it. He was living in the community. Now, the word neighbor in the Greek is plesion. It means to be near. To be neighbors denotes location, nearness, proximity to people. Brian Stevenson, he is a lawyer, and you might be familiar with him. Um, he has the Equal Justice Initiative, and he's a prominent lawyer, and he does capital punishment cases, and he talks about the power of proximity. He says you have to get proximate with people on the margins. He says that we can't claim to be neighbors with people we do not know, and we cannot get to know them unless we are willing to get physically close to them. That's where the learning takes place. That's where the engagement takes place. That's where ignorance is defeated. It's about living among people. When you live with people, you learn to love them as you have been loved by God. You live with people because once you do, you dissolve the line between we and they or us and them. This is what we should make, this is what makes, this, excuse me, is what should make the Christian unique. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. In fact, he tells us to love our enemies. 
Don't you remember the story? Jesus eliminates the limitations on who can be a neighbor. We just read it in contrast to those who would limit love to their own people, to people who are just like themselves. Jesus says we have to extend the obligation reserved for the neighbor to the other, even to the Samaritan. I think too often as Christians, we try to do all these theological acrobatics trying to figure out who is not our neighbor. We're trying to rid ourselves of any obligations. We're trying to leave people out while Jesus is trying to draw people in. When he says that we have to love our neighbor as ourselves and loves our enemies, and he uses the good Samaritan as an example of a good neighbor, Jesus is destroying any false distinction we would want to create between us and other people. He says there is no way around it. Brothers and sisters, we have to love everyone. And when we are living this way and through the Holy Spirit, practicing loving this way, transformation occurs. This, my brothers and sisters, is embodied worship. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Living in community is a living bodily sacrifice. It's worship. Got to live in the community. We learn from this text that we must live in the neighborhood. Second, we learn that God has already blessed the neighborhood. We have to recognize the blessings of our community. Verse 9 says, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. God has already blessed the place where he is sending Elijah. And we must be able to see the blessings God has already placed in those communities around us. We must be able to see the assets in our neighborhoods. While we are always looking for challenges and those things will become apparent as we live among people, we can't focus on the challenges. The gift of the gospel is that we have the eyes of Christ, the promise of the resurrection, and the fuel of hope to see possibility where others see none. We have to see the blessings, the assets that are already there. The first asset in the text is the widow herself. Yes, widows were the poorest in the community. Without male covering or support, they were left to fend for themselves. They could not work. And this widow obviously had no one she could go to, no male relative. And her son is too young to help in any way. She's alone and she's poor and she's the most vulnerable, yet she becomes Elijah's greatest asset. The very same people we often overlook are our greatest assets. The teenage high school dropout, the retired school teacher, the man who seems to spend his entire day sitting outside on his porch. This widow, neglected and rejected by the community, is an asset. She's willing to give, even out of her lack, to participate in God's work. People. They're your next asset. They're your storytellers. They know the history of your community. They know the culture. They know the subtleties and the nuances you may not know. And they may not be the people with power. They're your everyday people who work and live in your neighborhood. They are your assets. 
One of the greatest assets in my community is a woman named Amy. Amy is a mother and lifelong resident of Inglewood. She attended the schools and she knows the people and she's one of the most respected people in the city. She holds no public office, yet she faithfully attends the city council meetings and the planning board meetings and the school board meetings. She meets with politicians. She pounds the pavement and, and meets with residents. She asks the tough questions and gets the petitions signed. She keeps her ear to the streets. And this is why I like Amy, because Amy tells me what I need to know. If you know Amy, you know everyone. She says, Pastor Sunita, I heard this. I heard that. What do you want to do about it? What is Metro going to do about it? And then she says, how can I help Metro? This is what I think Metro should do. You need people like that. People are our greatest asset. The third set of assets is actually you and your church, Bethany. You have something to offer this community. Elijah brought the word of God and a message of hope, and he also brought a plan. What gifts do you have to offer this community? As individuals and as a congregation, you are assets. God has placed you here for a reason. And yes, sometimes the assets seem to be the physical building and you've got a beautiful one here and the property around it. But oftentimes, it's you. You're the asset. And finally, the resources themselves are assets. They seem meager, but they are the foundation for how God will provide for them. We dare not walk into our communities, maybe adjacent communities, and only see deficits. We have the faith to declare that little becomes much when it's in the hands of the master. Whereas the widow can only see deficit, Elijah must be able to declare that what she has is far more than what she thinks she has. You know, sometimes when a person has been in the trenches for so long, in the weeds for so long, they can't see anything else. Whether it's because of an illness or financial difficulties. Some people have done all they know how to do and they feel like they keep coming up short. They can only see the gap between what they have and what they need. Some people will be pessimistic, some people will be skeptical and we can't judge them because there's a story there and this is why listening matters. I work and I worship in a multi-ethnic church, and we often have small group discussions about race. And one night, I was asked by a white man why the black community does not have more businesses in our communities. Why are so many owned by Asians, whites, or others? And I told this man, there's a story there. There's a history. Following Emancipation Proclamation, there was Reconstruction, and we saw a spike in black wealth and empowerment. But then following Reconstruction, we saw the pendulum swing in the other direction, however. We saw the institution of black codes and Jim Crow. Angry mobs would descend on places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Rosewood, Florida. Millions of dollars in black real estate and personal property would be destroyed. There were lynchings of what were called uppity people. Add to that redlining, the refusal to make loans to people in certain neighborhoods, historically black borrowers and black neighborhoods. Compound that with disenfranchisement, 
poor school systems, and mass incarceration. And once African Americans have fought for fair treatment in housing and federal and bank lending, education, criminal justice, voting, then we often see others walk in and benefit as store owners. These stories, these are the stories in some black communities and they're laced with fear, other times with fatigue, and they're passed on. These are the stories that we need to hear because this is where conspiracy theories live. This is where distrust forms. This is where skepticism breeds. This is where misunderstanding can lead to stereotyping. Not in everyone, but in some. And this is why stories are important. As we live among our neighbors, we must lift up these stories and listen to them. These people and these stories are our assets. As we hear these stories, we strive to help people see hope. Elijah proclaims the promises of God to the widow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Remind your neighbors who are in despair what God can do and what God has done even with a little. When this text is preached, it's often preached about the provision of God, and I love that kind of story. It reminds me that if we place, um, if we place in God's hands even the little bit, that God can make much of it. And sometimes our communities or surrounding communities, they look like they don't have much. So many people struggling, but we are a people who knows that God can do much with a little. You may think that you're only one person and you only have a finite amount of time, but that's that little bit that you can start with. That's the little bit of oil. That's the little bit of meal. Maybe you can tutor kids just one day a week. Maybe you have a green thumb and you can help build a community garden just one day a week. Maybe you can accompany a senior to the grocery store or to a doctor's visit only once a month, but that is something. And that's where you can begin. What do you have in your hands? This is what we have to ask ourselves because this is what God will ask us. That's what God asked Moses. That's what God asked. That's what Jesus asked the disciples before the crowd of 5,000. What do you have in your hands? To be a good neighbor, we must live in the neighborhood we must recognize that God has already blessed the neighborhood. And finally, we must recognize that we need our communities and our neighborhoods just as much as we think they need us. We are interdependent. This is a collaboration. It's not a corporation. Too often, we think that, that, that the communities need us, that they're so broken, they're so lost, they're so godless. They need us. But God reminds us through this passage that we need each other. We're, we don't fix those people. We find God there. Matthew 25 says, what you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. It's there that we meet Jesus. God tells Elijah, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that our future is bound up in the future of those around us. 
Our survival is dependent upon one another. Elijah will come with the word of the Lord, but it's the widow who has the food. His word is not enough, and her little bit of food is not enough. But when the two of them get together, everyone eats. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King wrote, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men and women are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. King understood that God created us to be interdependent. He created us to need one another. He created us to live in community with one another. When we are alone, we starve. But when we come together, we all eat. When we understand that we're not saviors, that we empower people to be a part of their own survival, the widow gets to participate in her own provision. And what's more, she's able to be a blessing to this prophet. He doesn't get to hold his piety, his his power, or his status over her head. The power dynamics have shifted. They're on equal playing fields now. He had what she needed, and she became a part of the solution to her own problem. Done correctly, there is reciprocity and empowerment. And the beauty of it all is that we get to see the power of God move miraculously around us. We see the power of God when we come together. Remember, God had pronounced this drought in the land, in the very land that was supposedly under Baal's control. The drought demonstrated the powerlessness of Baal, who was supposed to be the God of fertility and the Lord of the rain clouds, but Baal was unable to send the rain. He was unable to send fire, as we later found out. But in the midst of Baal's powerlessness, God's power reigns supreme once again. When we come together as church and community, even on soil that is is blighted by Baal, even on abandoned soil, even in the projects, even in the countryside, even in the strip malls, even in the cul-de-sacs, even in, in hearts of distrust and selfishness and greed, when we come together, we demonstrate that God still has power. God still has the power over the very things Baal has failed. God is still sovereign. God is still working God is still able. When we come to our communities, if done prayerfully, if done collaboratively, if we can seek after the assets and the blessings that God has already provided, we can demonstrate the power and the authority and the sovereignty of God. That's the story that we need to tell. When we become good neighbors, and partner with our neighbors, God can do what we thought was impossible. God desires to use us to heal his land. As Christians, we become worshipers when we partner with God out of deep gratitude to God and love for his people. 
He has work for us to be good neighbors, to love our neighbors so fiercely that transformation occurs in us, in them, and in our communities. That is our reasonable act of worship, that we become living sacrifices in this world. God bless you. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you are always at work around us. God, we thank you that you call us to be a part of that work. God, we thank you that we have experienced your love. We have experienced the ways in which you have been magnificent in our lives. And it is out of deep gratitude. It is out of um, an experience of that love that we go out and demonstrate that towards others. God, help us to be good neighbors, not just in word, but in deed, so that others can feel your love through us, God, so that others would hear the story that we sang about earlier, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.